welcome to the next episode in our Star Trek film series. Thank you for this idea, Darren. It's been fascinating to catch up with the crew of the Enterprise once again. Uh, how are you, Darren? Everything well? Living long and prospering, I guess. <laughs> can, can you do that with the fingers? You know, where they separate them in the middle. I, I just did actually. I was saying oh, okay. that. Oh, that's good. That's good. Neil does it, but it's only two fingers he can separate, and usually when he's talking to me. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Or just one. <laughs> <laughs> so last time we looked at Star Trek The Motion Picture, and overall, I would say our view is time hasn't been kind to what is a rather overblown film. But many looked at it, and I include William Shatner in this, who's been open in interviews and thought the Star Trek films would stop at that point. However, despite all the negative reviews, the film did make money and Paramount saw they could continue with the series if they could keep the cost down. But they had one problem first to overcome, Gene Roddenberry. They blamed him for what happened to Star Trek but Gene Roddenberry was already developing his own script for a sequel, oblivious to what everybody was saying about him behind his back in the production rooms. Darren, do you want to pick up the story from there? Roddenberry had a script, and in true Roddenberry fashion, he was just basically rehashing old ideas. So in this script, he had an idea of pretty much doing the episode and sitting on the edge of forever again. But in this one, you'd have a team of Klingons going back in time to um, stop Kennedy from being assassinated and changing the timeline. So the Enterprise crew would have to actually go back to um, to stop them. I think one of the ideas was that Spock would actually have to um, kill Kennedy to, um, to save a timeline. It, it pretty much became clear that if Star Trek was going to go ahead... Roddenberry had to be out of the way. Problem was that there was a contract that basically said that Roddenberry had to be involved in the making of anything to do with Star Trek. When the lawyers went through the contract, they found a loophole that there was no specification of what role he actually had to take. So what they did is they promoted him. Pretty ironic, actually, because the, um, the whole thing with Kirk is that he gets in the films he gets promoted to Admiral and then basically suffers because he's no longer in charge of the Enterprise. In this one, by um, <laughs> promoting uh, Roddenberry upstairs in the role of the producer, he still could give an input, but nobody had to listen to him. So, And he did actually have <laughs> lots and lots of complaints about Rafa Khan. Even though he had no actual creative power, he was constantly sending notes to um, Nicholas Meyer saying that he was getting it wrong. There is a story that when they decided to um, to kill off Spock, which was basically meant to be kept a secret, when the film was seen, everything was sort of you know done in private to try and you know keep this. The story is that Roddenberry leaked that information to the Star Trek fanzines that were around at the time, and that actually in turn had effect on the um, way they approached the uh, the actual storyline. With uh, Roddenberry out of the way, they were actually able to finally make a great Star Trek. Okay, interesting. So they effectively sidelined him. Yeah. And then this lower budget film series could go ahead and it actually became an arc of three films. Now, I want to throw a question out to you all before we even start talking about Star Trek 2. But if you were part of the Paramount board, God help us all, what would you have gone along with that plan? Or do you think something more ambitious should have been put in at this point? Uh, I'll start with you, Darren. I can only go by what the end result of. For me, the end result is the Star Trek film, which is pretty much, for most Star Trek fans, you ask them what the best Star Trek film is, and they will say Rafa Khan. After the motion picture, which didn't appeal to either the general audience or the, or the majority of Star Trek fans, they needed a home win. And, and this this is the you know the uh, the one we the went to, and I think they sort of made this. I, um, I think the whole trilogy thing that, that came out of this was, was a complete accident. I don't think they had any sort of plans going forward even after this. There's a very good chance that this might have even been the last one. And to be honest, you find this. I think in the in the tone of it, it does feel like it's almost like a, a bomb voyage to the Enterprise crew. To me, I, I think they got everything right. It feels like Star Trek, but it also modernizes it you know, and, and makes it a viable thing for, for the time. The only thing I'd say there before I pass on to the guys is I remember tracking this story at the time it was happening in, in the various magazines. You had Starlog and Starburst and things like that. And the Paramount 
exact were saying they wanted to do a couple of films so that they did have plans for a couple of low budget films but i take your point at this financially flopped um because they modeled it all on it making around about the same money that star trek the motion picture did but had it flopped would it have proceeded and that's fair enough neil if you were on that paramount board would you have gone ahead with the way it went if they're going to go for just trekkies um, and not try and open it up to everybody in a sort of Star Wars type thing, which obviously failed in the first film. Yeah, you might as well just keep it as low budget and just as sort of a TV movie. Okay. I think it was quite, quite intelligent, really. Great. I'd be quite happy with the way it came out. And I'd, I'd certainly the pitch would have been very good. Firstly, you've got a, a really good villain and it's Star Trek technology versus Star Trek technology, and it's very futuristic. And, yeah, I think it worked well. It really had a wide appeal because it was, it was a good story. The effects weren't bad. And it just did that old Star Trek thing of having a main plot going along but having a couple of side plots as well with the Genesis device and the death of Spock and all of that. Yeah, it's good. That's interesting. And, and the reason I asked this question and why I'm fascinated by all three responses here is that this must be one of the few times in movie history where the creative force behind something has been sidelined. The suits have come in with another idea and the suits got it right. And the creative force potentially was wrong. And mm. we all agree with that. And I find that quite incredible. Okay. Now, Darren, I'll come back to a point you raised earlier where Roddenberry was working on a story, and it was essentially rewriting an earlier episode, Sitting on the Edge of Forever. And yet what they've done with this, put a sequel to one of those episodes, an episode called Space Seed. Do you think that episode was good enough for a film sequel? Yeah, I do, actually. Just just to, um, in case you've never seen Space Seed, the, the general story is that the Enterprise comes across a... Um, a crew in hibernation from a ship from the 20th century, which turns out to be a, a dictator called Khan, who basically fled Earth with a bunch of his followers. They attempt to take over the Enterprise. They, they pretty much almost succeed. But at the end of the episode, when Kirk defeats them and gets the, um, the ship back, he, he puts them on trial. But rather than take them back to be to be imprisoned, he gives them the option of um, settling on a, um, on a world to pretty much basically start their own community from scratch which they accept. And the reason why I think it works is, for a start, you've got a great flamboyant villain and, and one that really sort of um, was like a, a match for Kirk in many ways and, and gave Kirk one of his toughest battles. But at the end of the episode, this, and this was obviously completely by accident, it's left open because there's a um, there's a little dialogue where they sort of um, talk about, oh, I wonder what sort of world Carno create and wouldn't it be interesting to return here one day? And I, I know for a fact that at the time they followed up on any episodes of Star Trek, it would also be the story would also end quite cleanly and then be ready for next week. And this one just has sort of like a lingering plot line, which in looking back at it is almost spooky. And I think when Nicholas Meyer, because apparently Nicholas Meyer watched all the Star Trek episodes to sort of you know prepare himself for um, di directing this when he sort of saw that episode i'm sure that ending was sort of sparked something in him but was like yeah we, we we could return here there's more of a story to tell and, and i think for me that if you're ever going to to do a sequel to a, an original series episode this one lends itself to that so well you wanted to talk about the trailer of this film and the marketing and the impact that it had on you yeah i mean <laughs> The trailer absolutely blew my mind. First of all, he starts off where basically sort of as a voiceover and um, and introducing Khan. And then you see this like shadowy figure with all these sort of lights behind him, which turns out to be Kirk. And then after that, you just see the Enterprise and this sort of ship absolutely blasting the hell out of each other. And you see on the ship, like the, the crewman running around and being blown apart and sort of in panic. And, it just felt like no Star Trek that I'd ever seen before. Because Star Trek was always quite sort of clean. It, it wasn't violent. This looked really, really intense and exciting. And, and not like anything, you know, I mean, Star Trek was always exciting. But it wasn't like this. The most you would ever get would be the camera sort of like 
altering and everyone throwing themselves around. There's a shot in the trail of a horror's computer blowing up in her face. This looked epic to me. And I, and I said on the on the last show that TV shows going to films always scared me a little bit because going into films, the stakes were always higher. And I always used to get the impression that, you know, there's a possibility of people because of the 70s film I grew up in, being killed or, or, or losing. And and so... I, but this, oh, oh well, we will certainly well, be touching well, yeah. on that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I just... I thought for his trailers... And, and the ending of the trailer as well, it, there's a voiceover where Khan telling Kirk that he's, he's left him buried alive and you hear Khan screaming. And then there's this like, weird voiceover or something along the lines of, at the end of the universe, vengeance begins. To this day, it is one of my favourite trailers of all time. I had forgotten that tagline. That uh, it was, it did strike me at the time. Okay, we've manoeuvred around this a bit. I'm going to you first, Graham. What are your initial views on Star Trek Two before we dig into this deep? Well, I was so happy with this this version. I really was after the the first one, where I was very disappointed. When I went to see this in the cinema, I remember thinking, "Oh no, this is really good." It, you know, the special effects were great, the story made sense, the villain was good, and it had that spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. It had that very tragic death scene at the end. Which, when I watched it, I thought, nah, that's a bit hammy. But, you know, they're TV actors, and it wasn't that bad. But, yeah, it got everything right. And as Darren said, and I never saw that trailer, and I wish I had. That sounds brilliant. But it did have an awful lot of action for a Star Trek episode, really. It, I mean, it was a film, but it's really an upscale version of the TV show. And so it was real good fan service. And I left the cinema thinking, well, I had my money's worth there. That was well worth the trip. Excellent. Neil? In the first one, Kirk, they're, they're all trying to be young again. And yeah. In this one, Kirk has to face up to old age, the glasses and all that sort of stuff. And the old Kirk is not good enough. He's got to be better than that. I love the bit where they started talking about the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, um, that was a superb bit, especially have, when when he has to actually face up to his mortality. Is there an unwinnable solution? And it very nearly was. So you enjoyed it as well. I certainly enjoyed it, Darren. I mean, this isn't just my favourite Star Trek film. This is one of my favourite films of all time. If, if I was to write my top twenty films down, I'm sure that this would be in there somewhere. Last time when you asked me about you know what I like about Star Trek, and it goes back to that when when you were a kid. You love all the, in this film, you love all the, the space battles, calm, the excitement and everything. But when you get older, you start to recognise the the underlying themes that are going on in there, driving the story. So about Kirk getting older and, and having to deal with that and him sort of like, his past catching up with him in, in, in many ways, not just with calm, but also the fact he meets the son that he, he never got to know. I just think there's so much going on in there. I think the space battles, even though it's sort of, cheaper than say star wars or that sort of thing the space but have a more personal level because there's just two ships fighting each other in a scene which it reminds me of that there's an episode called balance of terror where you've got a kirk and a rumbling captain trying to outwit each other and it's very much like that it's very much a, a battle of wits almost like a submarine battle kirk you're still alive my old friend still old friend You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. And also, it is, for a Star Trek film, very violent. I mean, you've got you've got the scene where they find the bodies hanging from the bridge in the science station. And, and after the first battle, you, you see the crew members, they've been sort of, they're all bloody and gory, but some of them are suffering from burns. You've got Scotty's nephew, who's half his face is basically burnt off. And when he sort of dies, he grabs Kirk's uniform and leaves a bloody smear across it. It is very intense. It, it does bring, you know, Star Trek into the modern day and take some race. And I actually, I do find it quite, moving i'm unapologetic about but i do think it's very moving in places yeah i i think it's a wonderful film so i want to go back to neil because neil's made this point earlier on we focus on the tv aspect and the lower budget did it make it seem like a tv movie for the big screen again also it'd be in a sequel 
Neil? Very much so. Just like a um, extended version of one of the episodes, and which it was effectively, as it's been mentioned before, the actors were TV actors. Um, why not uh, keep them into their comfort zone, if you like? Um, let's not go too far. I thought it worked very well. The TV series is what I remember, and the TV series is what I enjoyed. And they just gave us that. I thought that it was a very, we mentioned that Paramount made a very good decision. Uh, I thought it was a superb decision just to sort of keep it simple. We're all saying, oh, yeah, it's like a TV movie, as if that's a bad thing. If the TV component is really good, which Star Trek, the original TV series, were excellent, and that's why they're still around, you know, mm. 60 years later. It was really good TV, and I think they just took the best elements of the TV show and upscaled it and had a proper battle where you could see the ships flying past one another, the torpedoes being launched, all of that sort of stuff, space stations and then leaving dock, all the big cinematic things that they added to a really good TV show with great plots, great characters, and and there was also a sense of nostalgia. You got to see all your old pals, you know, Scotty and Bones from the TV series, but in a much more dynamic and realised environment. So, yeah, I think it works for me. Darren, I'm going to change questions for you. We've got Ricardo Monteblan returning as Khan. Now, in the first film, we had a bit of metal as the protagonist, if you like. <laughs> now we've got Monteblan in full force. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Do you think he's a great villain or over the top? I think he's a great villain. And and I think I think you you need some real flair and presence in, in this film. Bear, bear in mind we, we sort of got used at this point to having sort of big you know big villains in, in movies. I mean you've got sort of for example Darth Vader in, in Star Wars. You, you, you need something something like a larger than life figure, and and I think he's he's great. He's got this like real aristocratic arrogance about him. The sort of the way he holds himself. I, I actually I get that people say he's over top, but I think his his performance is really good because there's times where he's sort of he's talking like really quiet and seething, and then other times he'll just sort of explode into this sort of this you know and ranting. But he, he, I have a point; he's just got this really really dangerous vibe about him. There's a moment early on when he's got Chekhov and uh, and his captain um, captured. He realizes that. They're not here for him, they're here for a different reason. And you just see him suddenly, like, the, the gears in his mind sort of twitch and they think, he's realised this. Although he is obviously a, a bad guy doing bad things, you do get the sort of motivation that he has in going after Kirk because he, he blames Kirk for, you know, the death of his wife, for, for leaving on this planet, for never checking up on him, for losing his, his followers. So even though you, you, you I won't say you, you side with him, like, like the best villains... I think he sees himself as totally justified in, in what he's doing. I mean, he does have this, in, you know, being a, a former warlord and, and dictator, he does have this sort of entitlement to him. But you, you do sort of get, like, the motivation that's, that's driving him for vengeance. But also, in, in contrast to that, he's an arrogant narcissist in terms of, you know, the rest of his people are saying to him, look, we got off it, you've outwitted them, we've got a spaceship, we can go anywhere. Why have you got to do this? And and they're right, you know. Ultimately, like all you know, evil dictators like Hitler, I suppose, if you want, if you want to draw a comparison here, he will say, "I'm leading my people to greatness," but ultimately, will destroy them. And that's one of the great things for me about the Ooh. character is that he's um, he's got this super intellect. He's ma he's massively more intelligent than than Kirk, but Kirk's got the cunning, and Kirk plays on his his arrogance and his ego. Even though he's massively intelligent, he's massively flawed as well because he's got the very human ego 
that um, that, that sort of that drives him. The the one thing I noticed last night watching it for uh, again was that. Uh, Khan is driven, okay? We've said that before. Kirk killed his wife because he never checked up on them and he, he never went back. So Khan is totally driven uh, and he's just got this one objective and that's to kill Kirk. He's the dictator. He's the ruler. Now, in on the Enterprise, they're a team. So it's they play as a team. So when uh, Spock says to Kirk, his thinking is two-dimensional, that's the turning point in the battle because Kirk goes, oh, right, if we go up or down, go round behind Khan, he won't see us. And so that there's that thing. There's the thing where they say minutes or hours and hours or days or whatever it is. The, the little codes they pass, they work as a you team. that bloody clever then not to work that one out. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. All right. But you see the whole team play and how the, the, the Federation of Planets work together. They're team players. You know, they train very well. Khan's just, you know, single purpose single guy, my my way or the highway. And that, that really came across to me, and I hadn't spotted that the first time I watched the film. So there are things in this film that uh, are, are quite uh, interesting and little subplots. Well, certainly driven. I mean, he's, he's driven to insanity more than anything, I think. I, I saw him more as a sort of hissable villain, somebody you can boo when he comes on. <laughs> and, and it's not in a kind of pantomime, I suppose it is in a kind of pantomime way, but I watched the series when, it, when I was a kid and he would have been one of the ones that I would have booed. And it just occurred to me that I think before I came onto this thing, I was thinking about the long hair and the, and the, and the um, shirt that's open up and the, and the muscles <laughs> and everything. I just thought I, he, he could look like a drag artist. <laughs> <laughs> which which would which would make an, which would make watching it again completely different. <laughs> Dear Lord, <laughs> and, and the whole tone of it would would completely change. And I think I might do that actually as a, um, the villain as a drag artist. <laughs> Dear I'm not even going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, with the long hair and scruffiness, it looked to me like he'd been in lockdown too long. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about directors at this point. Now, in the first film, they brought in Oscar winner Robert Wise, who'd made some of the greatest and most popular films in film history. For this, they bring in Nicholas Meyer. Now, Meyer had been a novelist. He'd written a few film scripts, his 7% Solution, both book and the script he wrote for uh, the film about Sherlock Holmes is excellent if you haven't seen it. And he'd made one film. It was a science fiction film. But it was a very low-budget science fiction film called Time After Time about H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper. He had also never seen a Star Trek episode. Obviously, he was cheap to bring in and direct this. Was that a good choice? And Darren, I'll start with you. Yeah, definitely, because all you have to do is look at what he actually came up with. And not only this film, but the, uh, the other film he directed, Undiscovered Country, that one again, it ranks quite highly in people's, um, you know, best Star Trek movies list. So there's a term that he, he said when he came to this, and it's that he came to a Star Trek with a very healthy disrespect. He wasn't going to be tied to like the Roddenberry vision of, of Star Trek, which I think held back Star Trek for many, many years whenever he, he, he got any sort of creative control in any of these series or films. And he did do his research, he, he watched every single Star Trek episode. I think the the good thing about this, he came into Star Trek with a fresh set of eyes, and he was able to to bring a more modern day sort of feel to it to a series that basically had been around since the sixties. Listen to a, a commentary with him, and I actually like a lot of his um, creative philosophies that he, he had about it. And one of the things that he says is that it's not the film's job to basically answer all the questions. So, for example, there's a scene early on where Khan starts undressing and reveals himself, but he leaves his glove on and he leaves the glove on for the whole time. And the studio heads were asking him, you know, why, why doesn't Khan take his, his, his glove off? And fans were asking that. His response was, I don't know, what do you think? Because he says, you know, the best thing to do with things like that is, is to create questions, inspire debate and like, you know, and, and let fan theories go and everything like that. And, you know, you don't have to explain everything that goes on in, in the film. You don't have to have backstories to everything. There is something to be said for leaving some sort of mystery and little sort of, you know, Easter eggs in there for people. 
everyone actually enjoyed the experience working with him. Leonard Nimoy totally changed his attitude to Star Trek because he enjoyed being on this so much. And and I think more so than Robert Wise, he was engaged because he also rewrote, and he, he didn't take any credit for it, he rewrote a lot of the script as well. So, uh, yeah, but I do like that. I never noticed that with the glove. I, I will have to go back and have a look at oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. That whole scene where he has, where he's undressing is quite chilling. You know, you think, who the hell's this guy? You know, and then he just picks Check up, up, up and holds him up to the ceiling. You think, oh, right, this guy's a proper villain drag artist you get that sense that's this is going to completely spoil this now um (laughs) sorry (laughs) i I was really happy about this film i thought yeah i watched it again i thought yeah it still resonates it's got it and then you come in mr spoiler and just go yeah drag artist so now all i'm going to ever see is root all in space yeah (laughs) gentlemen Start your engines, and may the best woman win. Drug artists can be scary. I've seen drug. I've, I've seen. <laughs> I've seen drug artists fight in Sheffield, and it was one of the um, the most um, violent punch ups I've ever seen in a nightclub. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> right, we are now taking a break from Star Trek <laughs> Darren, to tell us about what you fight in drag outs in Sheffield. Please, I am all ears. It was in the queue to a nightclub, and I saw this some um, scuffle quite a, uh, a b- breaking out, and so me and my friends were kind of like stepped to the to the side just to see what was going on. And there were two. Um, first, we thought, oh, it's two women fighting. The way they were throwing punches were like really vicious, and and when we got we, we sort of stepped back when we got closer, it was um, two um, people in drag, one, one quite tall and one um, quite smaller and plump, and they were basically just beating the hell out of each other with uh, a few other drag artists trying to keep them apart. It was... <laughs> <laughs> they weren't slapping and clawing, but they, they were like you know proper. <laughs> punches going in it, it was it was quite quite vicious <laughs> but anyway that's exactly what mobile phones were invented for exactly. isn't it yes yes <laughs> bloody hell okay now we've coming back to star trek 2 and we'll go to neil and we'll start talking about the themes of the film to try and get some sanity back to this now <laughs> um so the main theme, and it continues all the way through, and it is touched upon in the first film a bit, that of ageing and possible regret on choices that you've made. Most of the cast in this time were in their 50s and 60s. And if you think of film as a young person's medium, particularly in cinemas, I mean, you had all the science fiction films like, you know, the Star Wars film, Disney were getting in on the act. And yet this did something completely different by looking at older actors and old age. Neil, did that work for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, It it centres around, really, I would love everything centres around Kirk, but um, he has to face up to his old age. The first one, he tried to be young again, and that really didn't work. And this one, um, he's forced to wear glasses. He's forced to, you know, he can't just walk in and um, take over. And as it turns out, he gets them into terrible trouble. And he has to face up to the fact that he's not only got to be his old self, he's got to be better than his old self. It's bringing in that Kobayashi Maru, isn't it? The the unwinnable solution. He has to face up to the fact of his own mortality. They all look very old, don't they? But they worked with it. Nicholas Meyer, again, worked worked around it, didn't he? Um, that whole idea that they're ancient. Graham? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, the, the main theme of you've got to face up to the fact that you're aging and you will eventually die. And I think also Kirk needed to put his past mistakes into some sort of context. So he'd left that professor and um, he had a son that he had been absent from doesn't seem to call back to people much does he he left Khan on that planet and never bothered about it he left that woman and never bothered to follow up on the sun a bit of a selfish bastard really the main themes of aging i thought was very well done and the rookie crew and could the rookie crew pull off fighting against this incredibly dangerous opponent and i thought that worked well and scotty got a, a bit to do rather than just say the dilithium crystals will not take what 
10 or whatever. (laughs) And and that's an interesting point. And Darren, I'll put the the same question to you about the aging work, but I also want you to talk about the relationship between Scotty and the young lad that died trying to save the ship, because that isn't clear what that relationship is in the cinema version. The the edition that I watched for many years was on, on video, you just get a sense that this young lad is just someone who's really passionate and that Scotty's taken under his wing as an apprentice and that he's really, really proud of. But they actually edited out the explanation of that. And, and actually, I, I read the novelization many, many years ago, which sort of you know, dealt with it, so I knew about this. But if you watch the director's cut, they've put the scene back in and Scotty actually explains to Kirk that the young lad is his nephew. And that is why there's sort of such a connection and why Scotty's by his side when he uh, passes away and why he gets so upset. So, And that was something Maya was actually in disagreement with. The stu- For some reason, the studio took that out. Mm. And I don't know why, because it's a five-second moment that adds a little some- something to the film. But they wanted it taken out and Maya disagreed, but it got overruled. But there was also a cute little scene as well where, Shatner, knowing who this young lad is, makes a comment about the Enterprise not being up to scratch. And it basically really offends the kid, and the kid starts to snap back at Kirk and like restrains himself. It shows a little bit of the, the Scottish spirit, which I think is quite nice. But again, that got taken out. So that's what the, the, the connection is, if you ever uh, managed to see the director's cut. The, the whole sense of them getting older, rather than have them sort of trying to be skipping around like sort of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, use that as part of the, the story. And it, it, I, I love the whole thing that they're effectively mentoring a new crew to take over for them. There's, there's that line, and, and you can see how it's hurting Kirk because he makes that line at the start about how gallivanted around the universe is for the young can see the whole thing like you know weighing on him he's, he's surrounded by antiques there's the scene where mccoy's at his uh, birthday mccoy gets angry and mimics it's lying about um, damn it jim other people have birthdays why is yours like a funeral and it's just like things like like that Every, everyone can see what's happening to kirk in there spock knows it mccoy does and they know that he basically needs to get the enterprise back because in the role that he has now, he's miserable. He's getting old. He's he's almost making a pact with old age, staying static and and not doing the thing that he loves. We talk about the, you know, the, the Kobayashi Maru and the fact that it's a it's a test of of character and um, facing your mortality. And yet Kirk fails that because he basically cheats. This wonderful moment where. He doesn't agree with a no-win situation. Yet at the end, you find out that that is actually a flaw with him because when he actually does eventually have to face it, he can't. And you've got the thing with the glasses as well, how he, he has to have reading glasses and how he looks a little embarrassed when he puts them on for the first time in front of people. People always talk about Shatner's acting and he hams it up and everything, but I think he has got some really great moments in, in this. Like, like, for example, at the start when... Uh, Spock asking where he's going through here and he just has this sad look on his face and his smile where he says home. I think Shatner came into his element in this thing, probably because in a way he was probably also playing himself, having to deal with sort of getting older. Which leads us on into that finale where Spock dies. Before I throw this straight back at you, Darren, and I'm conscious of what you said earlier about you know how this has a, a real emotional resonance for you. And the scene of Spock dying, I can understand that. I think that's a strong scene. I think it works. What follows is, for me, where the weakness of the film is. It doesn't know how to deal after Mm. that scene. You've got that scene where they have the funeral with Scotty blowing the bagpipes, which is just ridiculous. Uh, And the only (laughs) thing thing I was watching was the camera on the dolly track as it was moving towards. I thought that was quite impressive. And then you've got Kirk's last words. How do you feel? Well, I feel young. But you've just undermined the main theme of the film. To him, he should be, I've accepted old age, I've accepted what's going to happen, and that will make me a better person. But it's almost like he rejects everything. Darren, over to you. I don't think there's anything good about accepting old age, personally. <laughs> you know, Brian Blessed, when people are asking him why he kept like, you know, climbing mountains and things, and he says he, he hates people who make a pact with um, old age and death. I, I think you can basically sort of come to accept your mortality 
without having to mourn and ponder it and wait for it. You can still, um, you know, live live the life of a young person. I, I think that the final line that he says it is wonderful. Well, you know, when he says that he feels young, and it's not, he's, he's feeling young because he's got back to doing what he loves. You know, he 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 is not suited to being an admiral and sending people out and things. He's meant to be out there making a difference, and that's something that comes up in a, a later Star Trek film which we'll hopefully get to it at one one day although it's about getting older it's also about new starts as spock's dying it intercuts with the birth of the genesis planet so it's like that as as people are dying they're making way for like you know a, a rebirth it's not like a an ending it's also starting you know a new possibilities and at the end of this there is the possibility that Kirk has come to an end of one part of his, his his life in the sort of in his relationship with Spock, maybe even as a, as, as a Star Trek captain. He's met up with Carol once again, but he's also got a new life with, with his son. But the possibilities that he can get to know him and become a father—it's a, it's a new adventure. So although it's about endings and getting old and that, it's also about rebirth and new beginnings. I mean, I'm all for sort of rage, rage against the dying of the light and all that sort of stuff. But, but really, I, I think we do. I mean, as a as an old person, Darren, sorry, um, you do have to accept a certain. You cannot do what you were when you were twenty. If he had said, "Look, I, you know, I feel good again," I would have, I would have been fine. I, you know, let's start again. Let's do this. I'd have been all right. But yeah, young again. Hmm. He's not like John Wayne in the shooters, where he's, he's sort of dying. He's still fairly young. They don't give an age, but apparently in the script, he was meant to be sort of like around about 50 at this point. So there's, there's still a lot of life in him. He's, he's not ready for the retirement home just yet. I mean, he's only a little bit older than, than, than I am now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a lot younger than Esther. Yeah, I think you're, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I should concede that one. Okay. Graham. For me, the point was really that Kirk doesn't want to be behind the desk. He wants to be in the chair. And those are two completely different roles. He wants to be out there exploring. And, you know, he'd come back to the Enterprise. He'd defeated a really uh, difficult uh, opponent. And, of course, he's going to feel young again. But, yeah, I think it was just a bit of an unfortunate way it was delivered i i think it works for me he's got he i think he's realized his limitations he's reevaluating his life but he still wants to do the captain thing and he's just lost his his best mate so it's a time for reflection no you can't get away from hell's heart i stab at thee for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. So one of the things in the previous film that worked only intermittently was the relationship between these characters, particularly Kirk, Spock, Scotty and McCoy. And this is one thing that Maya must have got out of watching all those episodes to get that interplay right, because when they're together... It's really good. It's really funny. And you feel that these are friends. Although I would add, and Darren, I will throw this to you. If he had watched all those episodes, he would have known that Chekhov never actually met Khan, which means that when he recognized them in the beginning, how did that happen? I don't really care. (laughs) 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 It it might something that I, because I saw these, um, Back to front, I saw Rafa Khan first and then I saw Space Seed afterwards because we released it on video. And I sort of re- recognised there that the sort of the little sort of, um, you know, the continuity issue, but it, I, it never really bothered me because Chekhov's the right person to have in that role in Rafa Khan. Mm. It, you know, because even as old as, as we are, he's always been like the baby of the crew, the sort of, you know, the, the more innocent one. And for him to be the one that gets captured and, and forced to um, obey Khan and, and, you know, has the worm things and everything. To, to me, he's the right person to do that. You need, if you were going to have a member of the crew be the one to be brainwashed, it, it, it works that it's him. So I, I know a lot of sort of continuity nerds may sort of bring it up, but... 
think things like that never bother me. If if it makes for a better story, I I I really don't care. Do you know Walter Koenig's version of, of events and how he did how he could recognize him? How's that? He said at the time of that series, which was series two, he was just a lower deck person. And at one point, he had to nip to one of the loos on one of the decks. And uh, he kept Khan waiting outside. And that's how he recognised him. That's Walter Koenig's story, which I think is wonderful. There you go. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is kind of like a, a sitcom, really, isn't it? With the operations room and everything re- revolves around there. Why a doctor would come up to the operations room, I don't know. With McCoy coming up and the interplay and Scotty coming up. And yeah. You've got all the main characters in one place. I thought that it does work well. It always did work well. And I, and I think that that fits in. With what I was saying earlier on, they're a team. You know, they work well together. And I and I always, when I watch Star Trek, I always love the interplay between the main character because they're not hierarchical military type environment. They need input from everybody, so it's a real collaboration, and they work together well. And I thought that was one of the best bits about this film is that they got that back together so they're all on the bridge together and scotty's always Mm. the disembodied voice but all the actions happening they're sort of together and they're working together to solve the problem so which is what i liked about uh star trek in the first place that they every week they'd get a different problem and they'd work together as a team to solve it yeah khan's the same he's just a bigger problem okay so did any other actors stand out for you graham no Absolutely not. Apart from Khan, I thought the rest were just wallpaper. Really, as a fan of the series, I just wanted to see the old gang back together again, you know, putting the band back together. I thought that was the best thing about this. So the rest of them sort of washed over me. Okay. Neil, Kirstie Alley worked for you? No, I think, um, yeah, I agree with Graham. Kirk's son. I mean, he's supposed to be a senior doctor, incredibly clever, but he oscillates between intelligent doctor and 12-year-old most of the time. I thought he was terrible. Um, yes, they're all sort of wallpaper. Okay, Darren. I actually like Kirstie Alley as, as Savvy, and I think she gets uh, a bit – I know she um, a lot of people don't. I think the problem is that they cut out the, uh, the moment where it's revealed that she's actually not a Vulcan. She's actually half Vulcan, half Romulan. And they actually did film that, but they edited it out. And that actually explains why she actually shows emotions at, at times. And, and I, actually, I actually really liked her character. I thought having a younger person making mistakes as she went along, but also bringing it a different perspective. I, I actually quite liked it. I, I, I wish that she'd have um, stayed uh, around and sort of and, and been savic for, you know, for another couple of films and they, they changed the the role, which we'll get on to the next thing, which was really unfortunate for her because she really liked the character of, of Savick, but her, um, her agent managed to screw things up for her. One guy actually did like it in the sport cast was um, Paul Winfield, who was the Reliant captain. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah I yeah, forgot uh, him. Yeah. I've always been a big fan of Paul Winfield, and uh, I, I thought... I, I thought he had an underwritten role, but I'm interested to see what you've got to say. In that scene with with Khan, he I think he really sells that moment of of being sort of in this pre- intimidating presence and the whole thing with with the worm and everything, which so, some people say is quite a hammy moment and everything. But I think he sells the tension of being sort of scared and everything, and the bit where he's been ordered to kill Kirk and he's sort of fighting. A, a, against his sort of, you know, the, the brainwashing that is is done. I really liked his role in that. Jumping on, one of the things he said at the beginning is that Roddenberry didn't like the way this was going. He sent memos all over the place. And one of the things I know he didn't like was that they brought in a military air. You, you talk about sort of submarines, but also I think it's more to me, the space battles were re- very reminiscent of frigate battles from the 1800s. And you had that whole feel of British imperialism, if you like, that's reflected in the way it's done. Whereas the TV series was much more show about peace. This film is about vengeance and violence. Darren, you said yourself, it's quite intense. Does that work? So the thing about the, the Star Trek TV show is, although it was meant to be about peace and the 60s sort of, you know, philosophy and everything, but you, you watch the actual 
show. It, they are a militaristic force. They, they, they use force every week. They get into space battles and stuff. And the, the cons- they actually are very, in a way, American-style imperialism. Every week they'll go to this planet <laughs> that has its sort of own culture and Kurt will come in and just change everything about it and sort of see them on the errors of the race. We're constantly interfering in other countries. So I think Roddenberry has this idealised view of what he actually made, but he actually had the elements in there already. I mean, it is a a military organisation. They've got the ranks of captain and admiral and everything. They have sort of torpedoes on the ship. Uh, To me, they are sort of like, you know, the armed version of NATO uh, or or the UN. You know, they are an unarmed group. And, it's, I think it's kind of really naive in that. Neil, do you want to pick up on that? I agree that um, maybe it is a bit more militaristic, but it's uh, you've got to bring something else to the party if you're going to make a film. They had to have something that was a bit more than just the TV show. Okay, Graham. Yeah, I mean, the minute uh, you give the members of the team phasers, then you're a military operation, you know. It, and I agree with Darren. You know, they were always breaking the prime directive and interfering in other cultures and that sort of thing. I was deliberately looking out for the more militaristic approach in the film, and really it's only slightly Roddenberry was just throwing his toys out the pram at that stage and looking for any excuse to... His aircraft carrier toys, probably. <laughs> His aircraft, yeah, probably. Okay, so yeah. I'll stay with you, Graham, and we're going to talk technical for a minute. We've got James Horner's score, which is a very different approach to Goldsmith's. Mm-hmm. In fact, he ripped off Battle Beyond the Stars for a lot of it. But you've got Industrial Light and Magic coming in with special effects that, to my mind, even though the budget cost a lot less, the effects were actually a lot better than the first film, but then they had moved on within that two, three-year period as well. What are your thoughts on this film technically? I thought it was excellent. Looking back from the 21st century, okay, it's it's not that great, but boy, comparing it to the first one, there is it's night and day. I mean, everything seems to react and work, and the space battle is, is exciting, and you can see what's going on, and you can follow what's going on. And when things blow up, and especially down in engineering, all of that sort of stuff was great. This is a real step up from the last film, really. And the, the first effects company need to hang their head in shame because that was terrible. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a massive jump on the on the first one, you know the uh, the special. I think not only do the special effects look better, but they they, they do more with them. I, I can always sort of forgive special effects if they're actually doing something like cinematic and creative with them. And here they look good, mm. but there's also like a sense of real scene. So, for example, like the bit where the lights flying and, and the Enterprise comes up from behind and everything and. James Horner's score, I, I absolutely really, really like. He does something which I, I really liked that he did in Battle Beyond the Stars, and that is that he gives the various sort of factions. In Battle Beyond the Stars, he gave each alien ship had its own little theme that would play when that was in and would switch back and forth. So you have the villain's theme, the various heroes' theme. And he does that here. You know, um, Kirk's and the Enterprise have their theme. We've got this like you know, nice little optimistic, gentle <laughs> thing. And Khan's ship has got this almost like a, almost like a pirate theme charging into battle, and the two flick back and forth. It's this wonderful scene where you you see um, there is a planet, and you see on one side you see the Enterprise, and then the camera pans up, and as it's panning, the, the music changes to Khan's scene as you see Khan at the other side of the planet, and the two circling each other. I just think things like that. It's it's just done so wonderfully. When they're sort of getting ready for the battle, there's almost like a, a marching type theme, as you see, and everyone getting into the positions. I, I, I love that. I think if I was to listen to the score just on its own, I'd be able to visualise every single scene. The music, it tells a story within each scene that it says. I really do think that the the likes of J.J. Abrahams when the when he was making the last Star Wars film could have really done to watch a film like this and just see how it's sort of done, how you can basically have an exciting movie without just having filling the screen with like about three hundred spaceships all shooting each other from different directions. You know, there's a real sort of class to this, and I absolutely love it. We will obviously come on and talk about it when we get there, but I think one of the rare high points in Abraham's vastly overinflated career 
was his attempt at the first Star Trek film he did. The other two, I disagree with Neil. I think they're rubbish, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Let's sum up your thoughts on the film. Graham, let's start with you. I was really quite nervous going back to watch. I thought, oh, I was I was sitting down thinking, did I enjoy this one? Oh, yeah, I did actually enjoy I thought this one was really, really good. Oh, here we go. Fingers crossed. And, yeah, it lived up to my expectations. I thought it was great. And it's a, a cracking story as well. It's set in the... I'm going to use that word again, set in the Star Trek universe, but it was. It was a cracking story, and all all the old gang are back. What more could you ask for? Neil? Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, it's like the uh, TV series, isn't it? I mean, this, the TV series is set in a turbulent 60s, and um, it's a vision for better things to come, and that good always beats evil. Um, and I think it uh, managed that trick and is better for it. I love this film. There's, I think there's a real warmth about the characters, which was really lacking in the fir- first one, where you, you get a sense that these are friends, that they're, even though they work, they work together in a military organisation, that they are friends, there's a sense of family, that, you know, that, that there's, you know, they care about each other. And there's moments in there that have stayed with me for, forever from the first time I saw it. The line that Scotty gives... When in in the death scene where Kurt's trying to get to um, Spock and um, Kurt's going, he'll die. And Scotty just says this line that chilled me as a kid when I watched it. Stay to me to this day where Scotty just says, he's dead already. You may say that the acting's hammy, but I actually do think it's a heartbreaking scene. Uh, It's done so well. I'm glad that this sort of gave Star Trek a, a rebirth and, and because there's so many other things that came great out of it. But if this had proved to be the last Star Trek that they ever made, I think it would have been a really fitting film and it would have go, gone on like a really nice goodbye. As it is, I love the fact that they made more, but I think this is just you know such a great movie. And I don't think you have to be a Star Trek fan to to enjoy it. You know, I think if you ever see one Star Trek thing, I think this is the one to watch because it's just, you know, such a great movie within its own right. Thank you very much, Darren. And that's our take on Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. And next time we'll talk about the very direct sequel, Star Trek, The Search for Spock. And as Darren said, that this may well have been the last film. That sequel was never that guaranteed it was going to go ahead. So there's an intriguing story behind that, which we'll be talking about. And we'll be doing our review of what we thought of the film and does it hold up today. So take it to Warp Factor 5, guys, whatever that means. And let's go. Let's go.